0: Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals.
1: Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience.
0: We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey.
1: I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up.
0: And I'm Jeremy, a NeuroSpicy software developer turned startup founder, building the Focus Bear app to help people with ADHD and autism thrive at work. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I can get to sleep in time for my two hour long morning routine. The Focus & Chill Podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though, you'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to FocusBear.io. Welcome to episode number 32 of the Focus & Chill podcast. Our guest today is Evie Kennedy. Evie is a service designer who works to drive equity and accessibility in health, disability and hardship public services. She's completing her master's degree in health policy with a focus on public mental health and health equity. Late diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and combined ADHD, Evie is also an Olympic weightlifting coach and an advocate for both the physical and mental health and well-being of neurodivergent people. She is passionate about exercising for your brain, trauma-informed coaching, and creating safe, inclusive sporting communities. Welcome to the show, Evie.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: To start off with, can you tell us about your experience with neurodiversity, especially the late diagnosis part?
2: Um, I mean- I always knew I was a little bit different, but I didn't really know why when I was younger. Um, and I, I kind of just put it down as I got older, I think this is where the late diagnosis stuff comes in. Um, as I got older, I sort of started to put it down to personal failing. whereas when I was a bit younger, I thought, oh, everyone goes through this, right? Everyone's got, um, you know, journals full of observations of people trying to make sense of the world. That's that's what people do. Um, but I think when I was younger, for um, example, my younger brother was diagnosed early with ADHD um, and he had speech delays and he had sort of overt hyperactive behavioral um, stuff going on and a sort of comorbid learning disability. So I was like as a child, I was somewhat the opposite. I was like hyper verbal and hyper So I think as I got older, um in my mind, there was no way that that I could be autistic or ADHD, um, let alone both, um, because my reference of it was not um, what what I am what I am at all. Um, mm, and sorry, your diagram. reference was your brother yeah. almost. Yeah, and I think that so the reason that I ended up getting um, diagnosed with it was because um, as I got older. So I think for a lot of people, um, things start to get harder as you enter the workforce Um, because when you're in school you can kind of base your life around activities and things that you like and kind of hide behind those sorts of things but when you get into workplaces um, and a lot of things are really social and there's a lot of lights and there's a lot of routines that you can't like control your own things you have to do things by the company I think it gets harder um, and that's where people start to go wait what's wrong with me And so. I I remember acutely, um, this was my first kind of inkling that um, moving into the adult world that potentially there was something going on and I wasn't sure what it was. The transition from university to the workplace was really difficult for me. And I actually um, was having constant meltdowns when I'd get back from the office because of the lights. like being in, like lights are a sensory problem for me, like bright office lights. And it was just exacerbated by um realizing that if I didn't learn to, for example, small talk or I didn't prepare scripts that people were going to think I was really strange um, in the office. And so that stress of transitioning from not having to mask to having to teach myself how to mask so that I could you know excel in my career. Um I think that's where it started to um to really become clear that there was a problem. But I just thought that I had anxiety, which I think a lot of women do. They just think, oh, I- I'm anxious because it's just a thing that I have um, or there's something wrong with me. Um, and so the turning point for me was, I think I got to this year and my bur- I'd been in basically kind of waves of autistic burnout for the last three years as my role in my life had gotten more intense and I'd placed more kind of demands on myself. And I kind of made like self-improvement and mental health and self-development and becoming like a girl boss, my special interest for most of my 20s. And my kind of mantra for a long time was, oh, like, it's fine. You know, I'll just learn to do all these things and then everything will be fine and I'll be happy and I'll be successful. And it was like, oh, I'll just learn how to, you know, small talk. I'll just have scripts. I'll learn how to present. I'll learn how to be really organized. I'll be perfectionistic and perfect at everything and everything will be fine. And then that kind of shifted to, I've read all the girl boss books. I've read all the self-help books. I've done everything that I'm meant to do to be accomplished and to be healthy and to be well. I eat well, I sleep enough. I do all of the things. I've controlled every aspect and I'm still tired. I'm still confused. I'm still like, I go through these periods where I can't speak um, after long periods of talking or presenting. I feel confused. I don't know who I am. I'm having an identity crisis essentially and it was really confusing and so I thought okay there's something really wrong like I, I thought I don't know I don't know what I thought but I yeah that's where I kind of started my diagnosis journey I went to my GP and I was like I don't want a mental health plan I don't want to talk about my feelings I want you to um, I want you to give me a, um, a script to go to a psychiatrist and I want to know exactly what's wrong because I'm sick of it so that was my kind of like diagnosis journey I suppose so actually prepared, and this is pretty funny, if you look back at the fact that I've been diagnosed with autism, I prepared a really comprehensive PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> with, the
0: psychiatrist.
2: With a timeline <laughs> of my behaviours and struggles from birth to now. So that's like 30 years of me reflecting on all of the things that I'd observed about myself. Um, and I walked in to the psychiatrist and I was like, hey, I'm exhausted. I don't know who I am. I feel like I'm playing a character that's not me and I'm getting really tired. Is there something really wrong? I've prepared a spreadsheet here and I was really, really determined. And even before I walked into the, so I've, I've seen about three or four psychiatrists in this whole diagnosis process, as Jeremy would probably know. Um, and so I was going to walk into the first psychiatrist's office and I was preparing myself, like the kind of getting into character and getting ready to like present. And then I was like, I kind of stopped myself and I was like, this is why you're going to the psychiatrist because you have to do these things and you don't know why you do them. So maybe just go in as yourself. And so I went in completely like dead faced, unmasked, no nothing. Um, and uh, after I'd finished going through my comprehensive PowerPoint about all of the things about me, that's when um, he was like, "Well, um, I think I have a diagnosis for you. You'll have to go and get comprehensive testing if you want to understand more." But the reason, blah, 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 um, is because you have autism spectrum disorder. And I was like, what? <laughs> so
0: you, um, you hadn't, that, that wasn't on your radar at all going into
2: No, it. I mean, for a while I thought, like, do I have ADHD? But then I didn't want to be one of those people. And no hate at all to people who self-diagnose or who um, find information on the internet. I think it's amazing. It's been great for everyone. Um, but I didn't want to be one of those people that was like assigning myself things. And I think autism has a huge stigma. Also, I didn't even know what autism looked like in a woman. So I was like, I don't, I don't like trains and I'm really good at talking to people when I want to. I mean, yes, I need three to five business days to recover, but I can do it. So it was a whole thing. But then I Googled, um, I Googled what autism looks like in women and I read a whole lot of like, i I read a whole lot of stories about women through their lives and what it looks like. And I saw myself in all of those stories and all of those kind of recounts. So it was a big process um, being late diagnosed. And it's been all this year. So this year's been a really big year for me.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds super intense. And I'm glad that after the the journey of three different psychiatrists, you've found some answers. Have you the found a
2: that... was a big one. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So that in terms of the actual diagnosis process or the the revelation of it?
2: I was convinced that I didn't have ADHD. So even when I went for testing for autism, because I was like, I have systems, I have routines, I have whatever, I, I'm not ADHD. Um, the I did the pre-test surveys and uh, the psychiatrist who was doing the, pre, the kind of pre-testing, what you, should you get tested for stuff, He goes, look, you're indicating that you could have ADHD, you need to do some, I I recommend you go and get comprehensive testing for that too. And I was like, oh, no, no, thank you. No, I I don't think I have ADHD. I have a job and I can concentrate when I want to, even though I have to put all of these things in place and I have to be really, really (laughs) organized in order to do it. And sometimes it doesn't work. I'm fine. And he was like, look, with all due respect, I don't care that you think that you don't have ADHD, like you should go get tested. And then when I got, yeah, combined inattentive hyperactive, I just, yeah, it was just a lot for me. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I I felt the same when I got my diagnosis as well because I also I had all the systems and I felt like I was managing life. But I guess many people who are neurotypical don't need to have those kind of systems.
2: Yeah, that's the thing when you're going through the diagnosis process, and they're like, "Do you have trouble with this?" No, I have a system. Okay, (laughs) but without the system. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: <laughs> have there been changes after getting the diagnosis are there? Have, have you found that it has released some of that those feelings that you described at the beginning? You were saying that it almost sounded like some self-flagellation when you were you were first saying that you would beat, beat yourself up.
2: Yeah, it's definitely helped with being kinder to myself. I think the biggest thing that it's helped me with is understanding Um, overwhelm and sensory overload and when I because I used to snap and I didn't know why whereas now I can prevent myself from snapping or from getting so overloaded that I just have a meltdown like I start crying or and I can't really or I go mute Um, it's given me the kind of tools to prevent that because I can name what's going on whereas I used to look at what was happening to me internally through a mental health lens or through like common vernacular around feelings. And I never it never really worked for me. I never under it never felt like it fit. Like labels like anxiety or depression didn't feel right to me. Um but uh now that I have kind of like the understanding of okay lights um and you know certain sounds, if I'm prolonged like if I'm exposed to those for a long period of time and it's not beneficial to me, I will be tired and I'll need to retreat to a dark room for a bit or whatever it is. Like things like that I can work into my routines and rituals. Um, so now I can schedule I think the best thing actually is that I have an excuse not to be social and I can just schedule quiet time without feeling guilty. Because I used to think like, what is wrong with me? Why do I want to like why am I so tired? And why do I always want to retreat and just spend all this time alone? And like for a woman, Sorry, this is a gross generalization, very sexist. But Mm. as a woman, you're like, I want to have friends. I want to be social and I want to be liked. But it's so intensely stressful and exhausting and pubs and bars are really loud. And I can't hear because when there's multiple sounds going, it's really hard for me to understand conversation as well as Mm. there's all this stuff. So now it's kind of like I can do more autistic friendly things and it's better for my mental health. Mm. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing it's helped me with, kind of understanding when I need to schedule in time to decompress or when I need things. Otherwise, there's going to be a really big detrimental effect on my health.
0: Has it helped communicating with co-workers as well? I know when we were talking in our last catch-up, you were you touched on it before around that occasion where you, you have to do back-to-back training sessions for several days, and that is super draining it would be for me too and that uh, you were saying your co-worker was very confused.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's helped me to be able to advocate for not working in ways that um, will drain me, like doing, you know, back-to-back four-day workshops. I won't mm. do that anymore because I know that physically I'll go mute mm. um, and my words will slur because I'll get so exhausted. Mm. But I think actually in a workplace sense, it's been amazing because um, I'm lucky that where I work, there's a group like a neurodivergency group, which I've joined, which has been really nice um mm. to hang out with people like me um, and get involved with like um the well-being um, group from a neurodivergent lens and things that I'm passionate about. But broadly, it actually has been a little bit alienating in another way, because people don't seem to really if I tell people, oh, yeah, I'm autistic and I've got ADHD, people don't seem to believe me. Um, because I don't look like, to them, people on the spectrum are like, yeah, of course, like we knew. But to people who aren't on the spectrum, um, I don't look like someone with autism and ADHD. So, that stigma is actually really hard because I feel like almost a liar when I'm not.
0: Mm. It's weird that people would have a a stereotype as to the way that, that someone looks. And a brief tangent, actually, someone was telling me about this AI system that they had built, that they had trained it on photographs of people with autism, and they were saying that it had 90% accuracy in being able to predict whether someone was autistic or not based on childhood photos. But I don't don't really believe that. I I think maybe, maybe for level two autism, it would be a bit more apparent, but I don't. It's an invisible disability for a reason. So it's really strange that they would think that there's a, that they could tell whether you're on the spectrum based on looking at you.
2: I agree. That's so interesting. I'm Sorry, I'm thinking back to my childhood photos. But to be fair, like my childhood photos were just me and my siblings all being ADHD. So we're probably just like moving in the photo, which is (laughs) the indication, not our faces alone. It was just us being (laughs) hyperactive.
0: (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I hope your colleagues come to have a, a better understanding and it's great to hear about the neurodivergency group as well. I might have to get some tips on that because I'm trying to start one in my workplace too.
2: It's so cool. Um, it's It's been really great and it's actually really great when we have meetings. It's actually quite funny because we'll have a meeting and all of us will talk all over each other and jump in and um or we'll forget what we're saying or um whatnot. And then we'll like go away and then all of us will kind of forget or be overwhelmed with other things and then we'll all come back together and go, Hey, well we meant to do something. Oh yeah, <laughs> we meant to do- <laughs> and it's just oh, it's, it's it's beautiful. It's a safe space. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Love
1: it. Eva, you were mentioning your co-workers. Can you tell us a bit more about the uh projects that you're working on during your work time?
2: Yeah. So um i am currently so as a service designer i am focusing so my current biggest project i've been working on is i've been designing a specialized pathway um for people who are experiencing financial abuse um so i've been working um to make um the fine system so i work in the fine system um i've been making working to make the fine system more equitable and more safe for people who have had um find weaponized against them. Um, so I've been really working in the kind of designing for safety um, land. And I know that both of you kind of have worked in tech. Um, I've been reading some really great stuff and I've had to incorporate a lot of um, kind of best practice in designing um, kind of services for, for safety and taking it from a tech point of view, because obviously like tech is the first thing that can be weaponized um, in the design land uh, against people. Um, who are in um, abusive relationships. But yeah, essentially that's what I've, it's taken up a good eight months being the project lead um, on that. And it's involved a lot of kind of consultation with um, kind of industry experts in the domestic violence space, um, as well as working with um, police and um, other kind of government bodies. So it's been a really huge piece of work. And it's me and my coworkers who've been on the project. um, It's been, it's actually taken a huge, kind of toll um mentally because it is so complex and because the risks are so high. So um it's been hugely rewarding because we are at the stage of almost like going into implementation for it. Um, and it's it's a real um political priority at the moment. Um, as I'm sure you guys know, um domestic violence is a huge political priority in Australia at the moment. So um that's my main project alongside um so working in service design in the hardship space. A lot of stuff I also do around my main projects is to do with making government services more um, human-centred and in kind of embedding methods of, I suppose, design research, design thinking that really um, put people at the heart um, because I sort of work at the intersection of service design and policy. Um, and policy traditionally has been very top down um, in the sense that, you know, policy writers will write a policy or government will kind of go, oh, this is what we need. We'll write this and then we'll implement it. Um, and people haven't necessarily been consulted. Um, so that's kind of what I'm working on from a project point of view um, in my day job. Also, um, alongside being a service designer, I am an Olympic weightlifting coach. Um, so Olympic weightlifting is not powerlifting. It's not bodybuilding. it's Um, And I have to say this because any weightlifters listening will be like, oh, no, they're going to think that you do bodybuilding or powerlifting. Um, It's the snatch and the clean and jerk. So it's what you see in the Olympics. Um, That's the sport that I coach. And I've been um, doing the sport as well, um, competing in the sport for about six years now. Um, And so when I'm not doing service design and doing my master's, um, I'm coaching people in weightlifting Um, and taking people to competitions. Um, I've got a couple of clients that I see every week, I've got a couple of group classes that I take, um, and that takes up a lot of my spare time. But as you can imagine, um, as someone with ADHD, coaching and jumping around a gym and showing people how to do physical stuff is actually kind of perfect, so it doesn't even really feel like work. Um, And I'm really lucky to be, I coach the most amazing people and the gym environment is super positive and super supportive. So. Yeah, that's, that's what I, what I work on as well. I do a lot of stuff, um, in kind of the sport space. Um, and I really, I'm really passionate about kind of looking at sport and how to make it more accessible for everyone so that everyone can get what they, um, can get something out of sport. Um, because I think that sometimes fitness and sport communities can be quite exclusive um and can be not that friendly or not that accessible for people with different needs. Um So I'm always thinking about how my coaching can be accessible, how, um, you know, I can make people feel safe, how I can kind of meet people where they're at with their goals um, and not have one kind of narrative around what people should be aiming for um, when it comes to sport or when it comes to weightlifting. And also weightlifting as a sport, if I can just make a plug, is actually quite a perfect sport for people on the autism spectrum if I can just say that, because it's repetitive, it's a solo sport, you have complete control over it, Um, you don't have to touch anyone. I personally like that about weightlifting. Um, Also, you don't necessarily have to sweat that much. I don't like sweat sensory-wise, so I think that's pretty cool. Um, And I also was reading a Reddit post, it was by a powerlifter, but he had autism, and he was saying that the sounds that barbells make um, can kind of act like a stim. Um, and I definitely feel that when I'm lifting, cause it's all about timing and it's all about listening to like the bar, like the different, like the bar hitting your hips, your feet hitting the floor as you catch the bar. Um, and I feel like it's quite soothing, um, as an exercise as well. Um, I've also had someone, um, that goes to my gym who has AHD say that it's like the perfect active meditation. Um, for people on the spectrum who have really busy brains, um, because it's technical, um, but it's also obviously physical activity and you can kind of be in a state of flow but it's a state of flow with your body so yeah uh, i think weightlifting is pretty great um so shamelessly i'm just gonna plug the sport while i'm on <laughs> here because not a lot of people know about it um and a lot of people are like oh no i couldn't do that um but i do think that yeah i do think that everyone can get something out of strength sport in general um particularly people on the
0: spectrum mm. yeah i'm glad you made the plug because I. I have started getting into lifting, not just very small dumbbell style things at home. And I find that I really do like it, which I found surprising because I I always had negative perceptions of it, primarily around the gym environment. And maybe that relates to what you're doing in terms of making it accessible. Because I always found I don't like the music that's played. I don't like that there are TVs everywhere. The lights tend to be very harsh. I feel intimidated by the other people there. But doing it at home, I, I found very enjoyable. I'm wondering if there's something that you do in in the gym that you're a part of to to make it safer for people who are on the spectrum.
2: Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I'm lucky that I coach a specialist boutique gym, so automatically we can control the music, we can control the light. Um, it's a different environment to say a commercial gym. I think that. Generally, um, I mean, I'm very open to what people want to do with music. No music, headphones. We take turns at playing different music. Um, so it's not quite the sort of repetitive kind of pop with video screens and like flashing lights that you see in commercial gyms. Um, I mean, a lot of people like, uh, will just play like the same song over and over again if they want to. Um, we, I've had that happen a couple of times, but. Yeah, I I think it's easier with a smaller gym because we have capped classes as well. Um, Because we have like, I don't know, six to 12 people in a session. Um, It can be a little bit easier to make it less overwhelming for people and kind of check in with them. But I have to say, so sometimes I do have to train at a commercial gym because I live quite a bit away from the gym that I coach at. And I often train there as well. Mm -hmm. And I still struggle every time I step into a commercial gym with anxiety, anxiety. Like, I don't want to look at anyone. I feel overwhelmed by the music. I feel overwhelmed by the people. And I've been training in gyms for like seven or eight years now. So I feel like there's just something about commercial gyms that's just hard. So I, I totally get that, Jeremy. I agree. I struggle with it too. And I spend my all my time in gyms. Hmm.
0: You need a some kind of database of autistic friendly gyms.
2: Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm going to do that. That's such a good idea. I actually I can't really think of any though, aside from special ones. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, that can be maybe the the next project of making yeah. fitness spaces more accessible.
1: Yeah, definitely. Evie, you've you mentioned uh, both of your both of your jobs. Just wondering, um, how does your day start? Like, um, what does your morning routine look like, and how's that evolved over time?
2: Oh man. So when I was working in offices full time before COVID, my morning routine was like wake up existential dread, rush, get on the train, be overstimulated by crowded people, just be distressed all the time, have meltdown when I came home. Um, No, I'm being like half true. But now um, my morning routine, so I largely work from home. So my morning routine is about an hour and a half. I've actually written it down here because I have really bad um, memory, obviously. But um, I wake up I have ADHD brain fog. I'm like, what, what year is it? I get up. But what I've actually noticed is that, um, I've started to incorporate having a low dopamine morning because I used to get up and I used to be like, oh, I have to wake up my brain. Guess I'll just doom scroll for a little bit. Um, and it was actually really bad and I'd get really anxious and overwhelmed by all the kind of stimuli coming in. So I get up. I don't look at my phone. I don't look at any technology. Um, and I really focus on, um, kind of the rituals of, like preparing like my protein shake, feeding my dog, feeding my bird, I have a dog and a bird by the way, which is really, um. it's actually really therapeutic for me to have pets because, um, and I've read this actually about people with ADHD particularly, I find it really anchoring that no matter what, I have something that I need to get up and do that is not about me, that it's about, you know, my dog needs to be fed, um, my bird needs to come out and, you know, fly around and have a shower, for example. Um. And I've always really, um, as an adult, I've always really kind of depended on that. So that's just an aside. But in terms of my morning routine, um, I get up, I feed my pets, um, I love coffee. So I'll make a really strong coffee, like four shots of coffee. I collect mugs. So I'll choose my favourite mug or actually, to be honest with you, I have a different mug for different times of the day because all of my coffee time is scheduled into different times of the day perfectly. And I have a different mug for each time because that's what normal people do. Um, so I'll use my early morning big mug. Um, and um, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's a good one. What's on that? Is that marble? A, a, a self-made one, is it?
1: Oh, no, it's uh, sorry. I, I realised I was on mute. Um it's a Marvel Comics um mug uh, a friend got for me from um Hawaii and it's uh, I think so it's cool. about double size. It's about five hundred mils. So <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh my gosh, I have one. Do you guys know the this is a complete tangent, Sorry, you can cut this out, but do you know the um the chill kind of lo-fi hip hop label, the French one called Lo-Fi Girl? Have you heard of it? Okay. Well, uh, I, I have I've heard a mu- of it. okay. Well that's my like concentration music, but I have a mug of that, which is really cute. And it's like just as big, it's huge. And I sit there with my four shots of coffee, which I'm pretty sure is probably not the best thing, but it has like hardly any effect on me anyway. It just is kind of like a nice, like sensory-seeking thing. So I do that. I have the same food for breakfast every day. Um, that's probably no surprise to anyone, but um, I make my breakfast and I start so I start work at about 7:45, 8 o'clock every morning. Um, and that's because for me, um, I need to do I I find task switching really uh, really hard, so I do really deep work until my meetings start at 9:30 a.m. And I find that that quiet before the day means that I can like center myself, prepare to mask if any mask, um, and kind of get some stuff done before inevitably, um, I have to manage kind of overwhelm from different pinging things and different um kind of meetings going into my diary. When I'm in the office, um, I've already picked out my outfit the night before and organized it because it stresses me out to have to make decisions in the morning so I make all of my decisions in that before Um, and I'm kind of like a more diverse version of Mark Zuckerberg Um, all of my clothes for the office are mix and match the same colors they can all go together or not so it's not exactly like a huge task. Actual
0: wardrobe style.
2: Yeah that actually progressed so this is something that I've kind of allowed myself to do over time because I used to have Um, When I was working in an office full time and I was in in the corporate sector, I used to have like, I don't know, maybe like two months worth of clothes. And every day I'd be stressing out over which clothing I'd wear and all of it was like really uncomfortable, would upset me, would itch me, would whatever. But I was so hell bent on being a girl boss that I was like, I will wear things I cannot walk in and things that, you know, make me squirm um, if it's going to mean that. I can fit in and I can be successful and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's it's nice now to feel comfortable to not, to, to wear clothes that are functional, that are comfortable and that feel like me, um, rather than feeling like I have to contort myself to be someone else.
0: Love it. Yeah, I also used to have months of clothes. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of them, but it sounds like you've already progressed on the decluttering.
2: I still have months of gym clothes though, so, because the good thing about working from home is you can wear, you can wear yeah. gym clothes.
1: Can I can I say with the decluttering thing, this might be off topic. But recently I worked out how to um patch my own clothing. Um, so because I always wear out the crotch in my in my pants. It's it's horrible. <laughs> and I've I've had to throw out so many pairs of pants just because of these tiny little holes. Recently I worked out how to patch it and I've been kicking myself for, like, throwing out, like, pairs of jeans that I had. Um, Yeah, I was like, oh, I finally could get it back. Like, all it required was a few stitches.
2: (laughs) Can you teach me? Because my two of my worst habits are that, one, I don't fix anything, I forget, and then it all just ends up not being worn in a pile, a sad pile, or I just keep wearing it and it has holes in it and I just cringe every time I wear it, but I don't have the executive function to go and fix it. So I'm like, either don't wear it or wear it. (laughs) So
1: yeah, to take yeah. Me. yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, it's such a life-changing skill. It's so good. Yes. Cool. And it, it's so um calming as well. Like I I wrote an angry email to my electrical service provider this morning and I was like, oh, I think I'm just going to go mend my pants now. And I just like, <laughs> help me yeah, calm down. <laughs> so well, speaking of
0: doing sewing to calm down, often it's helpful to take a break before we send an angry email. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more questions afterwards.
1: Hello there, this is Joey. I'm excited to tell you about a project I run where I help imaginative people just like you breathe life into their creative dreams. Like writing that book or performing that stand-up comedy set. I know the first step can be daunting. I have been there many times and have helped many people on a similar journey. If you've wondered how to bring those ideas swimming around in your head to life, get in touch. Will shrink the intimidating dragon of a goal into a cute little lizard of an achievable daily habit that you can do every day to get started and stay moving click on the link in the show description to get in touch
0: we're back from the break and going to ask a few power questions the first of which is how do you optimize your productivity during your working hours
2: um so i'm a real big fan of arbitrary rules um and rules and self-imposed rules um so i like the time box thing. um i have to because i'm completely time blind a lot of the time um, so I'll do things like you have two hours to do this and then you have to stop or, um, you know, until 2 p.m. You're allowed to work on this or you're allowed to deep dive for two hours over here or three hours over here or 30 minutes for this. Um, so awesome. be kind of time boxing.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm going to borrow that. I'm, we're going to time box the, the remaining questions. Got, I'm going to give you one minute for some other tactics that you have for okay. optimizing productivity.
2: Okay, noise cancelling headphones and loop earphones. Um, if you're sensory, like I can't do anything without my concentration playlist or without um, dulling noises in the background. Otherwise, I'll just sit listening to all the other noises and I won't be able to concentrate. That's one. Big one for me is I break tasks into smaller goals rather than looking at the whole picture and getting overwhelmed. So, this has been a ritual that I've used over my whole career um, because I've always worked in project roles like research and um, service design where you look at something and go oh my god where do i start whereas um i find it really useful to just chunk it out um and i do that all the time and it it helps with kind of existential dread and overwhelm um and kind of the it, it helped me start which is one of the hardest things i think mm. um if you struggle with adhd uh, is starting starting things and, and also finishing things mm. uh, so that's another one early morning starts before meeting to ensure un- uninterrupted work time because um, uh-huh. I have trouble with task switching. So I find it hard to get into deep work if I have constant
1: meetings and constant interruptions. Hmm. Wonderful. So Evie, next, next round. So um, what is one habit that you'd like to remove from your life?
2: Uh, masking. Um, but that's because it takes such mental energy um, and it kind of makes me unproductive in the sense that when you're masking, you're always thinking about, did I do that right? Did I say that right? Am I making too much eye contact? Am I making enough eye contact? Am I weird? Did I think I'm weird? um was that too harsh was that too nice am i being creepy i don't know (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think that's that's definitely one also that kind of ties into rumination and shame over really small things um which i think is really common for people with adhd rejection sensitivity dysphoria and all of that great stuff Mm -hmm. um which are not really habits but it's definitely something i think masking is really hard Productivity because when you get to not mask, you can be so productive because your brain isn't constantly running, act like normal people in the background and taking up all your kind of headspace.
0: Definitely, I wanted I want to ask more questions, but there's an arbitrary rule, so I'm going to move on to the next one. How do you switch off at night?
2: uh this is this is a great, this is my favorite ritual that I have, favorite routine. I have many routines, so this is my favorite. So about an hour before I get into bed. Um, with a dim light, so I don't do ceiling light. I put my lava lamp on. I love lava lamps, very, very soothing sensory. And I play Stardew Valley on my Nintendo Switch. So it's a farm simulation game, tells my brain that it's time to chill, um, by taking it away from the real world and putting it into a happy farming land. Um, which sounds ridiculous because people always think that um, you know, playing games is bad for sleeping, but pff, helps me sleep fine. Yeah, so I think for me it's really crucial to have kind of two hours of quiet time of the night, um, and I often say to my partner, um, I'm not going to talk anymore, and that literally means we're not talking anymore, we're just doing our stuff, like he'll play games, I'll play games, and we're in our low-lit room because we have a no-feeling-light rule, um, and yeah, that's generally my, my my evening routine.
0: I love that, Ooh, no, no more talking, <laughs> no more talking time, I, I sometimes feel like that, so I should <laughs> tell my wife <laughs> that I, I might need to Im- employ that rule sometimes.
2: The no more talking rule?
0: Yeah. My partner's
2: not highly verbal, so it's fine. hmm.
0: (laughs) And the the no ceiling lights thing, that probably makes sense for everyone, I think, in terms of the circadian rhythms aspect and trying to avoid bright lights. I just got some... I'm getting some smart bulbs soon so that I can adjust the temperature of the ceiling lights, but maybe I should just get some lava lamps as well.
2: (laughs) My partner hates the lava lamps. I bought it. He was like, what is that? I was like, I love it. It's staying. (laughs) Like,
1: why? Evie, you were mentioning uh, Stardew Valley and and the Lava Lamp. So what other resources, like books, philosophies, apps, sensory toys, do you find most helpful for productivity and habit formation?
2: Um, So I definitely use fidget toys. Um, uh, I use them because uh, in meetings under the desk, I'll have a fidget toy. Um, I love squishy ones. Um, Because it means that I won't bite the inside of my cheek or pick the skin on my nails um, with hyperactivity and it kind of helps me focus as well. Um, In terms of other resources, um, I think for me, I've read read a lot of books on autism, which have helped me to kind of hack my own brain and understand why I'm the way I am. And kind of um, that's been really good. yeah, Noise Cancelling Headphones.
0: Any particular book she'd recommend?
2: So I read Chloe Hayden's autobiography. Um, she's the, um, if you guys don't know, she was on Heartbreak High. She's autistic. Uh, she's an autistic Australian actor. Um, and she's like more of a colourful, colorful, kind of bubbly, fun, lovely type of kind of autistic woman. And I'm a bit more of a gothy goblin type. But um, I really took in my stride her concept of, um, like allowing yourself to feel like your passions and really just leaning into your special interests and not hiding them um, because it's actually really detrimental um, for your kind of well-being and productivity for you to try and be constantly suppressing the things that you really care about. Um, so that's been really helpful um, and it's made me a lot happier um, just leaning into or being given permission to just feel passionately about the things that I feel passionately about, I suppose, in both my work and in my personal life. it.
0: Okay. And the final two questions, where can people connect with you or find your work?
2: Um, So I'm on LinkedIn as Evie Kennedy. Um, I'm always keen to connect with other neurodivergent professionals and discuss accessibility, health and design and things like that. Um, I'm on Instagram as Evie Kennedy with two underscores at the end, um, which is where I share my weightlifting and coaching. Um, And, yeah, so this podcast is kind of a soft launch um, of kind of coming out as autistic and ADHD. So I'm not overtly out on socials yet. Um, gosh, it sounds ridiculous saying out, but it's actually been a big deal to me. Like, do I announce things? Do I just start talking about it? Do I start posting? Um, so, yes, yeah. So I'm, I'm slowly kind of coming out on socials.
0: We feel privileged that this is part
1: of that journey. <laughs> you should. It's been wonderful having you on, Evie. Do you have any final words or asks for our audience?
2: we all deserve to feel comfortable and safe and seen and just it's and I should take this advice myself but don't let anyone make you feel bad for feeling passionately about something or for being interested in something or um you know like the world needs people who give a shit and people who care and aren't so hell-bent on trying to be cool or trying to be nonchalant um you know that's how things get done that's how change happens and I think that you neurodiverted know, people are uniquely placed to make change and to and we already are like doing so many amazing things in so many places and so I just think yeah everyone should and I'm working on this myself not feel shame or feel strange or feel especially the late diagnosed people who haven't had a long time to kind of come to terms with it as part of I mean it, it can be whatever it is to you like obviously but yeah I think that that whole kind of piece around not not feeling shame and, and kind of leading into to your like do I don't know to who you are and being authentic which is easier said than done um but it's definitely something I'm trying to
1: trying to do so yeah wonderful and we'll wrap the show with that
0: thanks for tuning into this episode of the focus and chill podcast to listen to other episodes jump onto podcast.focusbear.io if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at teamfocusbear.io. At Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out.